Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Amenadab, and to Amenadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Solomon, and to Solomon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Ruth 4, 18 through 22. The last time we were together, we finished looking at the life of Samson. Again, he was the last judge in the book. Like most people God chooses to use to fulfill his will, he was not the most perfect or holy of characters to walk the face of the earth. Just like today's times, there is nobody that is perfect, and if God needs to use you, he uses people that are not necessarily perfect and sinless. The rest of the book of Judges deals with more sin and disorderly times before Israel appointed a king, all of which takes place under the governorship of the high priest Eli. But before we learn about that situation in 1 Samuel, we have an interesting book that we need to look at. It falls in between Judges and 1 Samuel, and it is the book of Ruth. Now, it is only one of two books in the entire Bible that focus mainly on a woman and her prominence in something important. The story takes place in the days when the judges ruled and not during the time following Samson's death, or so we're told in Ruth 1.1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Somewhere during this time frame, there was a huge famine in the land. Now, that's nothing unusual, and if we actually pay attention and pay particularly close attention to when these famines occur, this is usually when these times when God does something special or miraculous in the people's lives. We also need to remember that this was one of the judgments which God threatened to bring upon them for their sins, and we know that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord in between the different judges, Leviticus 26, 19, and 20. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly for your land will not yield its produce and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. Now, so this may have occurred sometime in between the judge, a uh, couple of judges or even at the start of one's reign, but nobody knows for sure exactly when the story takes place. Ruth 1, 2, and, uh, 2 through 4. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Now, Elimelech, whose name means my God is my king, was a good husband and wanted to provide for his family. This is no different than anyone else in the past during a famine who traveled to some distant land to where the food was. I would have to assume that he had not planned on living in Moab for the rest of his life. Now, he took his family, his wife Naomi, which means fair or pleasant, and it most likely fit a perfect description of her personality. And, uh, and it took their two sons, whose names literally mean sick and pining. 
Now, Elimelech ends up dying and leaving them in a place where they have to fend for themselves in a foreign land. The two boys end up marrying Moabite women, something that they really weren't supposed to do because of what Balaam of Peor did when he encouraged Balak to get his women to go out and corrupt the Israelites. Now they lived in there, uh, lived there for about 10 years and apparently neither son had children by either of these women. Ruth 1.5, then both Maclone and Kilion also died and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Now, according to Jewish writers, they claim that because they violated the Mosaic law, they died prematurely. Nobody really knows for sure, but this left the women alone with no support. Naomi was probably longing to go back home. And as soon as uh, she would find out that the famine had subsided in the land where she was from, she would return there and she made the necessary arrangements with her daughters-in-law. Ruth 1.8. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, both Orpah and Ruth must have started traveling with her to head back towards Ephrath before she told them, please go back home. They're not obligated to go with her. This would have been a whole new life for the both of these Moabite women, though. They would have had a chance to serve the one true God and abandon the idols and the crazy practices that they grew up worshiping. They would have had the opportunity to learn from both their husbands and from Naomi about the one true God but yet she still wants them to stay in their own land. In Eastern countries, women occupy apartments separate from those of the men and daughters are most frequently in those of their mother. She fully intended on them staying and remarrying so they would not have to face the tough and rough life of a widow. She blessed them and kissed them, which is the Eastern custom when friends leave. Now, Orpah and Ruth, they were having none of this. They were starting to whine and cry and say, no, we want to go with you. We, you're our mother-in-law. But Ruth in ver, uh, chapter one, verse 11 through 13 said, return my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Naomi presents a solid argument uh, for them to stay. If she had any sons in Canaan, which she doesn't, or uh, any near kinsmen whom she could have expected to marry the widows to raise up seed to those that were gone and to redeem the mortgage state, estate of the family, it might've been some encouragement for, the, for them to hope for a comfortable settlement in Bethlehem. But she had no sons, nor could she think of any near kinsmen likely to do the kinsman's part and therefore argues that she was never likely to have any sons to be husbands for them for she was too old to have a husband. In her mind, she was too old to really even begin again. And if she did remarry, she felt that she was too old to expect to have children. And if she did happen to have children and there were two of them and they were sons, could she expect these two young widows 
to stay unmarried till those who were who were not born yet would actually grow up and hopefully be suitable for marriage. All of this falls in line with the Judah and Tamara back in a story back in Genesis 38. Remember, after his firstborn son died because of doing evil, and his second son died because he did not want to have children with her who would not be his own, was killed. Judah didn't want to take the chance of giving Tamara to his youngest son because he was afraid he was going to die too. This caused her to trick him into sleeping with her to provide the child she should have had through his sons. This, of course, resulted in twins, Perez and Zerah. Perez provided the lineage that would lead to the birth of Christ, a family line that included Boaz and Ruth. Now, eventually, Naomi's arguments encouraged Orpah to turn back, but not Ruth. I really have to think that it really didn't take all that much to convince Orpah to turn back. It may have just been one of those polite things that she was willing to do. I'm going to go with you because you're my mother-in-law, but she probably really didn't want to. After all, this would have required to take a leap of faith and a drastic change to what she was used to. Now, I myself, I'm pretty adventuresome. If God says, I want you to go here, I move. I go where I'm called to go. Now, my wife, she grew up in the last place from where we came from, and that's where she spent her entire life. This was a huge leap of faith for her. But she said yes. And it's been a good life so far. Very encouraging by God. Now, Ruth in uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, but she said, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. This is a strong testament to those who don't know God or Christ who might be following or worshiping something else. When they finally get to know who God is or Christ is, and they make that commitment to follow them and accept the provisions that were given, God accepts them and calls them his own. Galatians 4 verses 3 through 7. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Naomi stops trying to argue with her and tell her, trying to send her away because she knows Ruth is going to stick with her no matter what. Little does Naomi realize this is God's plan. Naomi is saying yes. They continue to Bethlehem where the city was in the original language, hum. 
meaning distracted, murmuring, or in an uproar. Obviously, all of the things Naomi experienced had taken a toll on her. And when the women of the town asked if this was Naomi, according to Ruth 1, verse 21, or 20 and 21, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Have you ever known somebody who is so full of life, so positive, so bubbly, that it was a pure joy to be around them? And then somehow or another, either you moved or they moved and years go by and then you see them again and they're totally different. They're not that same person that they used to be. I've witnessed that. I've experienced that with other people. There is a noticeable difference in them. And it makes you just want to ask, what happened? That, I believe, is the situation here. They arrived just in time for the barley harvest. Enter Boaz. His name means in him is strength. He was a wealthy man, and some scholars believe, one who was also strong where God's law was concerned. He was a learned man. His, uh, he was grandson of Nashon, who was a prince of the tribe of Judah in the wilderness, and the son of Solomon, who some scholars believe was probably the younger son uh, by Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. Ruth 2, verses 2 and 3. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one of after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Ruth's character is on full display in these passages. She could have told Naomi, Look, we're kind of hungry here. We're kind of starving. Let me go back to Moab and bring us, get us some food and bring it back. But she doesn't. She takes on the role of a true widow, accepting the law of the land for gleaning the fields. And we're told about that in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. Now, when you reap the harvest of your, field, of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And this was emphasized in Deuteronomy 24. But the liberty to glean behind the reapers, now, that was not a right that could be claimed. It was a privilege granted or refused according to the will or favor of the owner. She was lucky. Well, luck is really the wrong term to use. Because this was an all, it was all of a God thing here to actually go into Boaz's field. Now, Boaz shows up to see how things are going. He sees this woman and asks his head servant who she was. Ruth 2, verses 6 and 7. She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Remember when both Naomi and Ruth came into Bethlehem, it created quite a stir. So I have to believe when the servant told him that she is the one who came back with Naomi, 
He knew exactly who she was, according to verse 11 and 12, and may have wanted to help out a relative in a roundabout way. Ruth 2, verses 8 and 9. Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Now she is moved that he is so kind, even though she is not like one of his own maid servants. She is a foreigner, a stranger. In Israel's eyes, she's supposed to be looked down upon because she's a Moabite. When the evening meal time came, he invited her to dine with the reapers and even served her roasted grain himself. She ate, and when she was given, uh, she ate what she was given until she was satisfied and even had some left over. Now, Boaz has gone above and beyond the kindness that is required to be shown to a widow. Boaz not only granted to Ruth the full privilege of gleaning after his reapers, but provided for her personal comfort. Ruth 2, 15 through 17, when she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out of pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. Unlike our farms today and our big tractors and combines, which when they are used, they pretty much leave a field stripped pretty clean. In the East, when they did the gleaning and they did it all by hand, there was potential for a little bit of stuff to be dropped, both during the, the gleaning and during the transport of it uh, to the threshing floor. Now, Boaz's order intentionally to drop some so that she could gather more was not only a compliment to her beautiful personality and character, but it would also provide a means of taking care of his relative Naomi. When she finished her work for the day, which included threshing the barley, making it ready for use so Naomi wouldn't have to do the threshing, she took it along with the extra roasted grain and gave it to her so she could eat. The amount of food she brought home prompted Naomi to ask where she had worked for the day. Ruth told her everything that had happened. And of course, Naomi is excited because she knew who Boaz was. Ruth 2, 22 through, and 23. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you have gone out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close to the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, Naomi encouraged her to do as Boaz said and stay close to the maidservants and go where they go. This would prevent her from experiencing any rude and bad attitudes coming her way and would also let Boaz see that she was grateful for the blessings that he's been providing. Now, Naomi's not blind and she's not really stupid. She can see that Boaz has taken more of an interest into Ruth and she would really like to take the opportunity to shall we say, promote this situation, kind of like a matchmaker. Ruth 3, verses 2 through 5. 
Now, is not Boaz our kinsman whose maids you were? Behold, the win he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go, you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what to do. She said to her, all that you say, I will do. Naomi reminds Ruth that Boaz is a close kinsman who could fulfill the law concerning a widow who has no children. But it was up to Ruth to make the claim. And it's not hers. And it would be in line with what we are told in Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 9. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. See, this is what should normally take place if someone refuses to do what's required by law. But Naomi, she does not wish to embarrass Boaz. But she wants Ruth to make her request known, but in a totally different manner. She did not tell her, she tells her to go bathe and anoint herself and put on her best clothes. She did not tell her to go make herself look like a harlot to make herself more desirable. She is to watch from a distance until he is finished celebrating the harvest and goes to bed. And when he is asleep, go and uncover and lay at his feet. This would have allowed for all the celebrants to disperse and allow her to approach him in a humble and private way. This lying at, the feet, at his feet while he was asleep sounds pretty dangerous and a little risky. Now, Naomi knew that Boaz was an older man. He was a grave, sober man, a virtuous and religious man, and one that feared God. She knew that Ruth, she was a modest woman, innocent and celibate. And it says, uh, and according to what it says in Titus 2.5, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. She's not worried about Ruth going in and corrupting him. She's not worried about Boaz waking up and seeing her and taking advantage of her. In the past, the Israelites have been seduced and corrupted by the daughters of Moab. But this Moabitess, well, she was not like those women. If Naomi had thought anything like this would, uh, would or could occur, she would not have told her what to do. She knew that Boaz was an honorable man by the treatment of Ruth and would not do anything to dishonor him. When she had made her claim, 
Boaz, who was more learned in the laws, would tell her what she must do. Now it came about that she did exactly what she was told, and sometime in the middle of the night, he woke up a little bit startled and saw her and asked who she was. She had identified herself and asked him to cover her with his covering, then made her request. She had already drawn part of the covering over her, and she asked him now to do it. The act might become his own. To spread a robe or a covering over one is, in the East, a symbolic action denoting protection. To this day, in many parts of the East, to say someone, to, to say of anyone that he put his cloak over a woman is synonymous, synonymous with saying that he married her and all the marriages of modern Jews and Hindus, one part of the ceremony is for the bridegroom to put a silken or cotton cloak around his bride. Ruth 3, 10 through 13. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. He made his promise conditional. And he really couldn't do anything otherwise because there was somebody that was in line ahead of him and he had first choice. He was closer. He knew that if this guy did not want her and could not redeem her, he says, if it's not, I will, I will take you. See, Boaz knows her. He knows what she is like. He's kept his eye on her. He knows all these great things about her. Well, he tells her, don't go away. Stay until morning. And she does. And he doesn't tell her, no, you need to go talk to this other guy. Ruth doesn't know him doesn't know who he is, doesn't know what he looks like, knows absolutely nothing about this man. Boaz says, I'll talk to him for you. I will bring up and propose what needs to be done. Now, the Hebrew word for widow signifies that one is mute. Proverbs 31.8, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Boaz will speak to the other man for her. Since she would not know how to approach the subject. I mean, what would she do? Go up and say, I'm a nearest, uh, my, my husband's dead. You are the nearest kinsman. I need for you to take me. That's like a slap in the face, a, a complete shock. If the other kinsman refused to do the kinsman's part, Boaz says, I'll do it. I will marry you and redeem the land. And so that we can uh, let the family name be carried on. When morning came, he told her to spread her cloak that she wore, and he put the equivalent of 15 gallons of barley to take on the Naomi. When Naomi asked how it went, she told her everything. Ruth 4, verses 1 and 2. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. 
And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Boaz went to the one place where in ancient times and in many eastern towns still, all business transactions take place. No preliminaries were necessary. No papers were to be needed to be drawn up ahead of time. There was no delays. And there was nothing to do except summon the people that were necessary. Now, the one kinsman that was a little closer or in line before Boaz, he just happened to come through that day. When he asked the elders to come and sit down, they did. They kind of knew that there was kind of a business thing that needed to take place if they needed to witness. In ordinary circumstances, two or three were sufficient to, to attest a bargain. But in cases of importance, such as matrimony, divorce, or the purchasing or selling a property, it was the Jewish practice to have 10 men. He then explained the situation to the other man who agreed, oh, I'll buy the property. As soon as he said that, well, Boaz dropped the rest of the, the, the stuff on him. Ruth 4, verses 5 and 6. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. This consequence would follow either first from having a son by Ruth, who though heir to the property would not bear his name. His name would be extinguished from that of Elimelech's property. It would go to Ruth's son. Secondly, it's having to be subdivided among his own children. What if he bought the land and he had a child by Ruth, and they decided, okay, we're going to divide everything up between the sons. How are people treated? We look at that through some of the other chapters in, in Judges. If you were a person who was born of a foreign person, a foreign woman, they were treated like garbage. This would possibly cause a reaction within his own family, a fight for the land. And he didn't want to have anything to do with that. This right, therefore, was renounced and assigned in favor to Boaz, in the way of whose marriage with Ruth, the only existing obstacle was now removed. Boaz was happy to do it. Ruth 4.7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. We look at what was supposed to happen back in Deuteronomy if a man refused to do what he was supposed to do. The woman was supposed to come and yank the sandal off and spit in his face and, and embarrass him and all kinds of stuff. Not a good deal. But here, there was no refusal. He was willing to buy the land. He just did not want to take care of fulfilling that duty because he couldn't and he knew that he couldn't. 
So he was avoiding all the embarrassment and humiliation of having a sandal plucked off. Boaz proclaimed the right of the kinsman in front of all the witnesses, the right to all the land that belonged to Elimelech and his two sons, and the right to marry and fulfill the duties of a kinsman with Ruth, to carry on the family name. Ruth 4, 11 and 12. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth and Ephrath and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Did you notice it? A multitude was there. They had all gathered and they were doubtless from curiosity or interest of, uh, and were present on this occasion. There was no signing of deeds, yet was the transfer made and complete security given by the, uh, by the public manner in which the whole thing took place. It was all concluded. The people were happy and they pronounced the blessing. Uh, they were talking about, may, may she be like Rachel and Leah. And that's usually, even to today, a bridal benediction. Additionally, the final part of the blessing pronounced, may your house be like that of Perez, referred to something as honorable and numerous as his. He was the ancestor of the uh, Bethlehem people and his family, one of the five from which the tribe of Judah sprang. When Boaz took her as his wife, they ended up having a son whom the neighbor women named Obed, which means servant. Psalm 113, verse 7 through 9. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. And he makes the barren women abide in the house as joyful as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Now, there is no greater joy for a grandparent to see their grandkids grow up, to have the opportunity to hold them and love them and teach them the things only grandparents can. I remember not that long ago, my dad wanted to know if I was jealous of the time that he spent with my, my great niece. He went on to explain that as a father, he did not have the opportunity or time to spend with me or my younger siblings between work, maintaining the house, providing for all our needs, it, it just took up a majority of the time. Jealous? No. I fully understood and understand. I'm a dad myself, and I did not have the time for the same reasons that he had to spend with my own kids. Did that make it a bad parent? No. Did that make them love me any less or me not love them? No. As we get older, as grandparents, you have the time to deal with your great-great-grandchildren. Your life has done what needs to be done to be fully supported already. You have that time. Ruth 4, verses 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life 
and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. The townspeople knew. The townswomen knew. Ruth treated Naomi so nice. She couldn't have asked for anything better. She took such good care of her that it was better than having seven sons to do so. She was totally devoted to her and took great care of her. Naomi went from being bitter, disappointed, and discouraged to her happy-go-lucky self, once again being fair or pleasant as her name means. I look at the stuff that Josephus writes, and he wrote, I was therefore obligated to relate this history of Ruth because I had a mind to demonstrate the power of God who, without difficulty, can raise those that are of ordinary parentage to dignity and splendor, to which he advanced David, though he were born of such mean parents. If anyone thinks that they have to be famous or rich or sinless to be of any use to and for God, remember, there was only one sinless man that ever lived, one that was ever born, and that was Christ. And he's God in the flesh. He had a purpose and a duty that he was here to fulfill. Mankind's redemption. Each and every one of us can be used to fulfill God's will if we just say yes. It's not difficult to have faith and trust in God if you feel the calling. Just say yes. Go and do what he needs you to do. In this time of trouble with uh, the stuff that the nation is facing, do you think maybe that God is saying, reach out to others who may not know Christ? Reach out to others who don't know him to tell them about him, to live the example of who they are? Are you worried? Are you concerned? If you have the trust and faith in God and you're able to show those who don't know him, there is a hope. There is something better out there. witness to them. You see, just like it just like it said, God did not leave Naomi without a redeemer. In the future, guess what? That redeemer is born through this line. He is a restorer of life and a sustainer for all. Trust God. Let us pray.